SolarWind Media presents Ron Schaefer's podcast. Some weeks had gone by and the Fuhrer had died down somewhat. The Navy had been combing the sea, but there was no further contact with the monster. I had finally made it back to the United States to find that my first reveal, my first article, had hit the newsstands and had even given our paper an uptick in sales, enough so that ARF was able to forgive some of my expenses during my excursions, but still didn't bother to pick me up at the airport or even blow in for my plane ticket. My second article about my adventures in the Bahamas was just going to press the week after my first, and it started to raise eyebrows and questions from legitimate, I mean to say, other mainstream newspapers about Dr. Colesor and Godfrey Olson Davis. Colesor had disappeared again. It seems he left Knott's Berry Farm in the middle of a workday, elf costume and all. The hunt was on for him, but he remained an invisible figure. God, meanwhile, had apparently had a meeting with Pentagon officials right after he left the island when I was dealing with Eve while in snake form. From whatever may have gone on at the meeting, God also vanished. And he took off when the news of TV cameras showing the purple penis jumping into the Gulf of Mexico was broadcast nationally. It's arguable as to whether God finished of his own accord or the Pentagon vanished him for their own sake. In any event, the press was looking everywhere for both men without success, and I received letters of congratulations in my mailbox from reporters at the New York Times and Washington Post. To be sure, that never happened before. I began to wonder if a new career was blossoming for me, such as a big job offer from another paper. So far, nothing beyond the congratulations showed up, but I was feeling pretty good about myself. It's about time I got recognized, not having been during the Cold War for my work with Dr. Flabbergast amidst the constipation crisis. I guess back then I published too late, of course, blame that on my captivity. This time I seemed to be right in the moment. So without hesitation, I waved my congratulatory letters under my boss, Arf Flunk's nose, and immediately asked for a raise. Fuck you, he said, then complained about the money I spent. He did, however, give me a Christmas bonus. Never having had one in my life, I was grateful for that much of a softening in Arf's granite heart. Out in the real world, while press and NSA agents looked for Colesor and Davis, the press were also busy hounding the family of long-dead Private Richard Head. The heads were photographed weeping and running from sight when the news of granddad's private parts were walking the streets of Texas, terrorizing people and wrecking neighborhoods. I had contemplated interviewing them myself, but so many were trying to get to them, all of whom were being turned down, that I thought I should concentrate my efforts on the Defense Department now that the dick was out of the bag. But I didn't have time to contemplate long. Two weeks after it disappeared, and only a few days after my report on God hit the newsstands, the so-called Purple People Eater reappeared. It emerged in the middle of the day near Queens, New York. Somehow it managed to swim, or whatever it could do, all the way from someplace near Corpus Christi, Texas, to Long Island in about 14 days, undetected by sonar or any other method. As soon as the news broke on television, I grabbed my expense card, forged Arf's signature on the paperwork, and ran out the door to cover the story. My departure was like, Arf, where are you going? 
me, New York, Arf, fuck you, and I was on a plane. It had been an ordinary day in the Big Apple. Women were hanging up wash, executives were having power lunches, cab drivers were yelling at each other in competing languages. When this big purple thing rose up from the water's edge, trumpeting like a furious rogue elephant and scaring the shit out of New Yorkers. The first thing it headed for was Coney Island. Why? Get into the mind of a radioactive dick and tell me. I don't know why it went into the sea in the first place and why the place it chose to get some sun was Coney Island. It's as much of a mystery as anything else in this weird story. Women screamed, children cried, people pointed fingers, nuns covered their eyes, gay men opened theirs really wide. Rising up from the water was an immense penis, trudging out of the sea, step by step, ball by ball, rising and rising, water streaming down its radioactive sides. Thump after thump, it moved its way. It had grown in time it had spent in the ocean. Now it was twice as big as before, well over 50 feet, and even taller when fully erect. Helicopters circled overhead. Emergency calls were put into the police, the fire department, and any other officials that might come to mind, whereas the press and the authorities had largely remained in Texas, expecting that to be the resurrection point. Nobody in New York was ready, although exposure to large penises was not all that unusual in this city. It moved its way onto the outskirts of Coney Island, causing cars and pedestrians to scatter and crash into each other. Some senators had even come out on camera stating that they had it on the highest authority, never mind who, that the monster had died, drowned, decayed, deceased, deactivated, and destroyed itself in the sea, never to be seen again. Those senators ran for cover when the cameras showed up this time around. And here it was in all its purple glory, glowing mightily. And as it did so, it spread out a spray of light made of deadly radiation. People too close found themselves burned and blistered from the reach of its dangerous aura. The angry phallus rose to its full extent and bellowed out a terrifying howl that echoed across the harbor. It turned onto a street and made its way through stalled traffic, crushing cars, twisting parking meters, knocking down street lamps, and knocking out deli windows as it went. By the time the police had arrived, the scene was already one of chaos and wreckage. Where to go and what to set up first left them in a moment of quandary. Within minutes, SWAT teams appeared and tried to set up a barrier to prevent the beast from going any further. They opened fire on it, angering it even more and causing it to shriek in rage. But the SWAT teams were unable to stop it. In the confusion, pickpockets went around picking pockets, dope dealers went around dealing dope, shitheads went around being shitty, lawlessness reigned. The gonads flattened the karate studio, leaving men and women in black and white pajamas, squashed like windshield bugs as it made its way farther into the amusement park. It attacked a roller coaster ride that was midway through its speedy, death-defying excursion. Passengers screamed, for real this time, as the gigantic penis flipped its head through the tracks, sending the coaster cars flying off the rails like a train fired from a cannon crashing it into vehicles and near the parking lot, knocking over a popcorn stand and a balloon cellar, sending the balloon man into orbit with a face full of popcorn. It tore apart the towers that supported the coaster, collapsing the entire system into a mass of twisted metal. 
It emitted a strange and powerful yum-like sound that could almost be mistaken for a perverse laugh as it crunched its way over broken metal and glass. The police had by this time made their way into the park and placed themselves in a position to fire at it. The penis let out a radioactive glow almost as a kind of pointed death ray, and the police fell into spasms of pain, having found themselves singed or barbecued by the emission, some dying in agony, their skin still bubbling and sizzling like fried bacon. But the monster continued on weaving a horrible path of destruction and death. It moved from the amusement park to the main street, radiating its deadly heat to storefronts and apartment complexes. People fell from rooftops and balconies like poison flies from bug spray. One SWAT team managed to make its way to the top of a building from which they opened fire. The terrifying penis aimed its malevolent head and sprayed the roof with a drenching blast of lethal uric acid. Every one of the police shriveled and collapsed in an agonizing death grip. The monster continued its way unabated as it made its way through the neighborhoods along the shoreline, turning this section of New York into a wasteland. It went along the shoreline parkway, grinding its way on its destructive course before it came once again to the edge of the water and plotted its way back in. A news helicopter followed its journey, camera and microphone in hand, before it sprayed out at it, knocking it into a fiery descent from the sky. With a final triumphant blare echoing off the surrounding buildings, the creature waded ever deeper. People flooded to the water's edge, looking aghast and taking pictures as the beast submerged into a swirl of water, leaving behind a burning hell on earth behind it. Such was the situation when I reached New York. A fear had gripped the Big Apple like nothing on earth before. Only the Japanese would understand it, not just because of the bombs, but, you know, Godzilla, etc. I really don't have to explain it. Anyway, I now vow to myself to get to the bottom of the plans to destroy it. My first task was to get close to whoever was in charge of the military campaign against the monster. That turned out to be Major General Halbert T. Cringeworthy, who was given the task of defending New York City from all enemies, foreign and domestic. In this case, the enemy was both, domestically created, foreign in the form of an adversary, or as most people put it, a what? Cringeworthy killed bees for a hobby. He liked the fact that they could defend themselves with their stinger. It made it a challenge. He would take them on one by one as if in a duel, but this he was likely to consider his biggest challenge, and no doubt was looking forward to it. He gave a briefing to the press later that afternoon. Being from the press, I was invited. Actually, I wasn't, but I went anyway. We have the situation in hand, he said at the press conference. Everything's under control. I had pushed my way to the front and started asking questions. Sir, do you know where it is at this moment? We have an estimate within about 100 yards of its whereabouts. And where's that? Where we can keep an eye on it. Everything's under control. Do you know what made it attack Coney Island? We are taking that under consideration, but the situation's under control. Do you know exactly what kind of creature you're dealing with? As far as we know, it's just a vicious monster. You have nothing to worry about. We have the situation under control. What if it comes up on shore again? We are taking that under consideration, but the situation's under control. What about the radiation it exudes? And what about the poisonous acid it sprays? What about the devastation it created in the moment it came ashore? And what about any plans for evacuation? 
I can assure you we are assessing the damage, the current situation, and there's no need for panic, as we have the present situation under control. Now stop bothering me because you're asking too many damn questions and you're getting on my nerves. The press conference was immediately over and he left the room amidst snapping photographers and reporters with long arms shoving microphones at him. The mayor gave a similar speech nearby at almost the same moment and saying much the same thing, but I wasn't there. I had to pick which conference I would crash. I figured Cringeworthy was not about to tell anything more, so I decided one of his aides might be a better source of information. That turned out to be a major crumb rubber dithers who spent his time eating McDonald's hamburgers when he wasn't needed. I followed him around for a while as the monster was not seen again for several days and the rest of the city was preoccupied with cleanup. It was when he was at McDonald's that I first approached him. He looked like a younger version of Don Knotts, only with a receding hairline, and kept picking invisible things off his clothes. I talked to some of my other sources to find out what I could about him. He had a thing about feet. I thought I'd use that approach to get to him. Hi, I said to him, walking up to his table, a Big Mac of my own in hand. I see you're a military man. Y yeah, yeah, he answered quietly, suspiciously. I'm a shoe salesman myself. Shoe salesman? His eyes seemed to light up. Mind if I sit down? No, no, go right ahead. Say, you must have quite an exciting time being in the military. Oh, I don't know. I don't suppose it compares with your field. What? Shoes? Ah, it's nothing. You've seen one pair of feet. You've seen them all. I wouldn't know about that. I would think there's always something different, unusual to look at. Maybe. But what about you? I suppose you're busy with this hullabaloo going on. What about this big monster thing they found in the bay? Do you think it'll show up again? Well, we don't know, actually. Huh, you know, I sit around all day and I'm putting shoes on women who come through the door and I think, boy, it sure would be exciting to be one of those who take on this thing and go to battle against an unearthly creature like that. Gives me goosebumps. All the way down to my toes. He just stared at me, mesmerized. You put shoes on women's feet? Oh, sure. All day, fat ones, skinny ones, tall ones, short ones. They all need shoes. That's all I do for a living. He started to drool a, a bit of tartar sauce and jammed his fish sandwich back into his mouth to keep from being noticed. Can I admit something to you? Sure. I've actually always dreamed of being a shoe salesman myself. Have you? Not the confession I wanted, but you roll with what they throw at you. Yes, I was thinking, when I get out of the army, I might want to open up a little shoe store of my own someday. Really? Now that's interesting. A noble aspiration, I'm sure. What makes you think you'd enjoy selling shoes for a living? His hands were trembling. Oh, I don't know. I just think it would be interesting, you know... Shoes, feet, feet with shoes. Oh, yeah, but you'd be sitting there all day putting shoes on people, kids, shoes on all those women coming in, trying on different styles, slippers, heels, adjusting their stockings, putting their feet in your lap. 
slipping the different pairs around their ankles, watching them walk around and pose in front of those low-lying mirrors, day in and day out. How can that compete with spending your entire career in the military? Dithers was on the verge of passing out. His fish sandwich was crumbling in his fingertips. Sweat was pouring down his neck. His eyelids were twitching. Could I come to see your shoe store sometime whenever I have an afternoon off? Why, sure, sure, anytime. I'd even treat you to a pair of shoes. What wouldn't I do for our boys in uniform? My shop is just down the street from here. Feel free to stop in. I could get a pair of shoes? Why not? Tight ones? Or ones that don't even fit at all? It's your choice. He slipped off the seat and tried to recover as quickly as possible. That would be nice. Ah, but turnaround's fair play. I'll treat you in the shoe store anytime you want, but... But? You know, and I don't want this to sound too creepy, but I kind of live through the exploits of military guys like you. I read the magazines, go see movies, you understand. I'm really interested in what sort of campaign you're mounting against the monster. Anything you can tell me, anything you can hint at. I hope you don't mind, but I'm really curious. For instance, what's General Cringeworthy really like? Oh, he's a swell guy, I guess. He's sort of blunt, but other than that, he's all right. Is he ever free to talk to? I mean, could a guy like me ever talk to him? Why? He immediately became apprehensive. Just curious. What does he think of this whole thing? I'd be most appreciative. I'd even let you stop in on one of our Saturday specials when we're having hosiery on sale. Dithers swallowed, then swallowed again. I could see if I could arrange something for you. That would be great. When do you think you could? You know, oh, well, do you know where we're stationed? Not really, but I've heard where you hold your press conferences. Oh, well, we'll be holding another one tonight. Um, why don't you hang around after it's over? Maybe I'll see what I can do. That'd be wonderful. I'll give you my name and number in case there's anything you want to tell me. After this, I stopped off at a bus depot to sit in front of their TV sets to check up on what the latest reports were. Nothing had changed. So I spent some time enjoying the delicacies one finds in the vending machines at the Greyhound bus station. To my surprise, they had nearby a few magazines featuring Asian women. Who'd have guessed? But I was in New York. This has been SolarWind Media Presents Ron Schaefer's Podcast. Find us at solarwindmedia.com.